Welcome to episode number 147 of the Chris Rose Rotation, a production of John Boy Media and presented to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. And I am super excited, kind of geeking out, if you will, today uh, for today's guest. He is the executive director of the MLBPA, a former all-star, a 15-year major league veteran himself, Tony Clark. Tony, welcome to the show. And I, I got to start with the real important stuff just right out of the gate. That is a real beard, right? I mean, that is that's authentic. That's not like James Harden. I take it off at night and hang it somewhere, and then put it on in the morning. No, it, it is authentic, and for whatever reason, uh, I, I bypassed gray altogether and went straight to white. I don't know how that happened, but uh, but yeah, no, it's authentic. Okay, and what is the decision on letting it? Like this is maybe the second time I've grown a beard, so I keep it kind of tight here. What made you want to go all the way, like to your belly button? I don't know that there was really a plan. I still don't know that there's really a, a plan at this point. So as, as much as it is where it is today, it could be gone uh, tomorrow. Um, no. My wife, my wife would be excited about it, at least being trimmed up, if not removed altogether. But we're we're making it work. Yeah, I mean, really, that, that let's be honest here. It's not your call. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. OK. <laughs> Tony, uh, all kidding aside, I'm super excited to have you here. we got a lot of business to talk about, but I want people to kind of understand. I mean, they've seen you as the face of the MLP, MLBPA now for the last eight years or so, but to understand kind of where you came from uh, in, in baseball circles, people may not know this, but you were the second pick of the amateur draft behind Chipper Jones in 1990. And these days, the draft is so explosive. They do a great job on MLB Network with it, but Back then, how did you even find out you were the second pick? Well, it, it's ironic, Chris. The the at the time I was really focused in on on basketball, uh, and so as as teams came out and scouted and and sat down in our living rooms and talked to us about the draft and the opportunity to be drafted, uh, I told them, you, "You're more than welcome to draft me, but I'm going to school and I'm playing basketball." And so, if that works for you, that's great. If not, I understand. Um, and so, come draft day, I was actually at a, a senior class retreat uh, up in the uh, up in the hills in 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 San Diego um, and uh, there was only one phone at the retreat and, and so for for me it was kind of crazy our, our the guys on our baseball team the seniors anyway were there and kept prodding me to to ask you know whether or not I had gotten drafted and I said guys let's just finish the day I'm not not really focused in on that and finally uh, after a, a number of hours I literally went into the 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 camp office jumped on the phone and, and called my dad and said, Hey, the, the guys are all around and, and wanting me to, to find out whether or not I got drafted. What's, what's the word? Have we heard anything? So this is about halfway now through the, the, the draft day. And my dad says, yeah, you, you were drafted second by the Detroit Tigers and uh, starting to have some dialogue with them uh, uh, even as we speak. And so uh, I didn't know initially, uh, wasn't really focused on it initially. And if it wasn't for uh, the baseball guys that happened to be there at the class retreat. I, I don't know uh, that I would have found out until we had gotten back home a couple of days later. That's unbelievable. <laughs> That's there's because there's people listening. They're like, wait, there's only one phone. And of course it's, it's sticking on the wall. <laughs> That's right. Pick up the receiver. You know, there's the big windy cord that you That's can walk right. about eight feet with. That's, <laughs> well, I mean, was That's... there a big roar after did, after you told everybody, was there a party? What was it? Yeah, the guys went nuts. The, the guys went nuts. And of course, I, I told my, my dad on the on the phone, you know, I, I hope that the Tigers understand because we told them I'm going to school and playing basketball. So whatever conversations that we have are going to have to in, incorporate that. And, and they did. And we were able to find some common ground. But yeah, the guys went nuts. And I don't know at the time I truly had an appreciation for for what it meant because I was so focused on going to school and playing basketball. But obviously, looking back on it, I wish wish I had enjoyed it a little bit more. I'm sure. But you ended up going, you started at the University of Arizona. You were mm -hmm. recruited by Lute Olson and that crew. I think Khalid Reeves was in your recruiting class, right? Mm -hmm. That's Chris, right. Chris That's Mills right. was there. Sean Rooks mm -hmm. was, I mean, Arizona was the big deal. But you signed with the Tigers and they let you play college hoops? Yeah. So we, we came to an agreement um, a, a few weeks later. Uh, that afforded me an opportunity to go to school and, and, and come September and, and play basketball. And then uh, then I'd go play minor minor league baseball during the fall. So at the at the end of, of May, June 1st, I would jump on a plane and wherever they sent me, I'd 
just jump into the season and, and play for three months. And then I'd go back to school September 1st and, and play basketball again uh, uh, in the fall and winter. Um, and I had had three years by which to do that. And then after year three, I had to decide what it was I was going to do. So you started your first year in Tucson, then you transferred to San Diego State and you played your last two years there. How close were you? Because you led San Diego State in scoring one year. How close were you to going the NBA route instead of the MLB route? I actually thought I was better at basketball than than at baseball. But unfortunately, uh, I, I blew out my back a couple of weeks into practice at U of A and um, was able to, to, to stay on on the court with some medicinal help. Um, but, uh, ended up having back surgery, uh, uh, at the end of that year. And, and, uh, I missed the whole summer, uh, of, of playing, uh, baseball, uh, that summer. And so, uh, unfortunately I never really was the same after that. Uh, so I, I had some moments here and there, uh, but as anyone would tell you, uh, during my time at San Diego state, I think I was playing every other, every other game because I just couldn't, my back couldn't take the pounding even post, uh, uh operation. Um, uh, in the fashion that it had previously. So I never was, never was quite the same. And that's why uh, in part after that third year, uh, I decided just to try to focus in on baseball, the, 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 the grass and, and on the field and the, and the swing didn't seem to bother it as much. So I figured, you know what, I hadn't played much. I played three weeks, my, my rookie year uh, in Bristol, Virginia, and then I didn't play my second year. And then my third year, I, I played, uh, I want to say a, a month, month and a half. And then I, I uh, partially tore a leg of it in my wrist and got shut down the rest of that summer. Uh, so rather than than go back to school after year three, I went to uh, the instructional league. I could only hit right-handed. Uh, I couldn't switch hit because my wrist was still off. Um, and then went to my first spring training in in, in 94, which of course was uh, 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 what ended with the, the strike at right. the end of the year. But um, it was an interesting road, one that didn't have me get a whole lot of bats in the minor leagues because I was literally hurt every year, even post back surgery, um, but was fortunate, um, uh, even despite that that bumpy road, making it to the big leagues at the end of 95. All right. Well, I'm a huge sports fan. I've covered sports for 30 years or so. I have to admit, I did not see much Tony Clark on the hardwood, but in I saw your numbers in high school. They were ridiculous. You averaged almost 44 your senior year. You had 64 in a playoff game. Give me the scouting report. Give me the 30-second scouting report on Tony Clark. 30-second scouting report. Uh, 6'7", 190, 195, uh, two-guard, 2-3, uh, shooting guard, small forward. Um, uh, defense, uh, not his forte. Uh, runs well, jumps well, uh, but can score from anywhere on the floor. Good. Could you shoot the three? Um, Chris, if you ask anyone who saw me play, they would tell you that I was that guy that was open once I walked in the gym. So you were Reggie Miller, like anywhere on the floor, I'm pulling it. Uh, that's, that was what I did well. Um, that was what I did well. You still hoop? No, uh, no, I, I get the itch to, to at least shoot, uh, uh from time to time, but but uh, but no, uh, not uh, not after I made the move to New York, probably about 10, 10, 11 years ago. Um, but uh, but it's still in there. I still watch. And uh, we were fortunate. My wife and I had had uh, our oldest daughter played ball in, in college. So uh, got a chance to live uh, vicariously through her and, and watch her play. I love that. Well, these days you're throwing elbows a different kind. Under <laughs> so that's, cool. uh, that's that's right. That's right. Hey, more of the Chris Rose rotation coming your way. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about Win Reality. That is the VR baseball training application that's available on the MetaQuest 2. It gives players access to unlimited game speed reps no matter where they are. And that is the key. If you've got a young player who wants to get better, but they don't have anybody to throw them BP or anything else, Win Reality is the way to go. It's got a pitcher library that consists of more than 600 pitchers all the way down from 8U to pro ball, from the release to the spin to the speed. Hitters get a chance to study every pitch, then hit it in real time. So it means it's pitch recognition, it's when to lay off, it's when to swing the wood, all sorts of good stuff. In fact, Win Reality gives players on all levels a variety of workouts that are focused on pitch recognition, on timing, on decision-making. Now, Win Reality is used by a majority of baseball teams, including... Paul Goldschmidt, 
So if you like a guy who's having an MVP season and might win the National League Triple Crown, listen to what Goldie says. Use win reality. If you don't want to just take his word or my word for it, how about coaches who are evaluating players? They all rave about it. Parents love it as well and what it's done for their son or daughter out there and the enjoyment of the game. And keep in mind, win reality isn't a game. It is a revolutionary tool that improves hitting in a real game of baseball in season. So what I want you to do is go to winreality.com slash rose. Sign up today. So you come up with the Tigers in 1995. And I forgot that Sparky Anderson was still the manager mm-hmm. when you got up there. I mean, holy smokes, to be managed by a legend right out of the gate. How intimidated were you? Uh, there weren't too many days where, despite being 6'7", 250 at the time, that I was actually comfortable. Um, the locker room was, was filled of, of veterans, um, which I am hugely grateful for. Um, and knew that if I was running my mouth and I was comfortable, then I wasn't 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 learning and, and wasn't listening. Um, so uh, despite being the biggest guy in the locker room, my mouth stayed shut. Uh, I oftentimes had to had to take some Pepto to calm my stomach down just so I could I could uh, uh, do the job that I needed to do. But but yes, playing for Sparky and being surrounded by by Cecil and Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker and and and. Uh, Lance Parrish and the like, the, the guys were tremendous for me, despite uh, pushing uh, uh, in all the ways that you would expect a veteran club to push a young guy, but I'm grateful for it. Plus, you got to play in Old Tiger Stadium, mm. which was, I was there as a visitor a few times. It was interesting. Yeah. Let's put it that way. You you must have banged your head in that dugout, that <laughs> low dugout, like at least 10 times a season. Yeah, it, it wasn't made for for guys that were really over six foot. Um, but uh, to your point, I mean, it, it was I didn't really appreciate it as much as I should have until we were no longer there. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, Al Kaline, uh, God rest his soul. He 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 was somebody that talked to me often. He was around the ball club often, even then. And I was grateful to spend the time both on the field and off the field that I did with him. Um, but I knew I was standing in the same batter's box that he did. I, I knew that I was was working in the same cages that he did. I, I knew that I was in the same clubhouse that that uh, he was in. And and when you get past the the the, the, the small dugout, when you get past the the low low walkways and, and small locker room, you get out on the field. The cathedral that was Tiger Stadium was awesome. Um, and I was grateful coming up in '95 through when uh, uh, we wrapped up there and in uh in 99 uh, to have played there for four or five years before uh before um uh, we moved on to comerica park so what was it like you know these days i think that rookies and uh, and i am appreciative of this i think that we've just progressed so much as a society and and that coincides with the baseball world that guys are so much more welcoming than they used to be <laughs> and i'm not here to have you tell tales out of the school but mm-hmm. it was different back then man I mean, it was way different when young guys come up. It's almost like, really? What are you doing here? Now they're like, hey, come on. You got to help us win. So what was it like to to be a young guy on that veteran-laden team? uh, You know, it was was challenging, but challenging in the way that was beneficial for me. Uh, In other words, uh, I I remember even the first spring training in, in big league camp where I had never been to spring training at all. Uh, before because I was going back to school and, and playing basketball. So I had no idea what spring training was about. And my first camp was big league camp. And so for day one, uh, we're out stretching uh, and I'm I'm off to the side as the veterans are walking around, chatting it up at a pretty good clip and and Skip comes out. And, and the first thing he says at the very first day of spring training is, is guys, uh, I got a, I got a, I got a question for you. Um, what do Tony Clark, and Michael Jordan have in common. And this is day one. And so I'm already uncomfortable. And the first words weren't, you know, welcome to the, the 94 seat. It wasn't any of that. It was it was that comment or that question. And, of course, the guys jumped in something fair. So, yeah, what do we got, Skip? What do we got? And his comment was, neither of them have played baseball since high school. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and, and so to, to say that was my day one, 
um, and lent, lent itself to being uncomfortable the rest of the time is an understatement. But in, in, in doing so, even that same day, some of the veteran guys pulled me aside and said, hey, you need to be more concerned if guys aren't talking to you or aren't talking about you. So just understand we're doing it to find out what you're made of. And so, you know, at the same time, they were digging and they were prodding and they were pushing. They were also encouraging um, and, and letting me know that they had my back despite the push, even if it comes off a little differently, but that they're expecting big things from me whenever it is that I actually get up to the, to the big league. So, um, again, uncomfortable, but, but encouraging such that I could continue to grow and develop in the fashion that I needed to. Okay, MJ. Well, let's continue on here. <laughs> you know, toward the back half of your career, all anybody ever said, what a tremendous leader Tony Clark is. And so there's no surprise you're in the position you're in today. But obviously you had to learn that from somewhere. Was there a particular moment where you were like, wow, that's how a veteran teaches a young guy when you were the young guy back then? Was it, did Trammell pull you aside? Did Sweet Lou, was it Cecil, was it somebody else? It was really a, a process. And if, if you'll allow me to, when, when I was in short season A-ball in Niagara Falls, New York, uh, we had an off day heading to Oneonta, and we stopped at the Hall of Fame, um, and our team went through the Hall of Fame. Uh, we were there probably five hours, give or take, and I think I spent about three and a half, almost four of those five hours in the Negro League section uh, of the Hall of Fame. And I listened to to video, and I I, I read the, the the plates and 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 learned a lot about why I had the opportunity that I did. I knew a lot about basketball history because that was much of my focus, but I didn't know much uh, about the baseball history, not as much as I should have or, or, or could have. And so spending the time then in the Hall of Fame let me know just what kind of responsibility I had um, and the opportunity that I had, should I make it to the big leagues? And even if I didn't, to make sure that those who came from similar backgrounds, those that looked like me, um, had a better opportunity to pursue their dreams than than I did. So leaving there um, and then getting to 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 camp in '94, and then obviously the strike uh, at the end of that year and uh, that off season, um, where because I, I I had actually a good year in Double A that year, um, got moved up to Triple A and and was told that I was coming up at the time that that everything got shut down. What that lent itself to was a lot of the veteran guys that offseason making sure I was okay. Hey, you know, we know it's a challenging time. We know there's a lot of things flying around. Are you okay? Uh, and so not only did I have an appreciation now for the history, I had a better understanding of, of who we were as a player group and what we were fighting for and, uh, and what was important for, for not just one of us, but for all of us. And so coming into a veteran locker room, coming into the game at a time where tensions were as high as they were, and the challenges were as tangible as they were, also helped lay the foundation for the responsibility that I believed I had. And so not long after I got to the big leagues, um, uh, I, I wanted to become a player rep on, on our team to be more involved. And I did so because of the responsibility that I thought I had, but as much as anything, wanted to make sure I had a voice in the in the rules that, that were going to govern my career, even if it was long, it was going to be short. Uh, so I got involved then. A couple years later, uh, I was I was voted among a, a broader group of our peers into um, what was called then the the American League rep, uh, which is the one that that essentially oversees the and is the voice for the American League uh, beyond the player reps. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, I ended up in the National League, um, and uh, uh, we had two guys that were both happened to be in the American League time. So the, the name actually changed to association rep so that it really didn't matter whether you were just in the National League or just in the American League. Um, uh, you were being voted in by your peers to carry on that role. And so I was involved throughout, um, but it had more to do with that first day at the Hall of Fame and appreciating what responsibility I thought I had uh, as a player. Playing was important. Uh, don't get me wrong. Performing was important. But uh, the game was bigger than any one of us and our fraternity in order to be strong moving forward needed to have people who were willing to step out of the out of the boat a bit on behalf of the broader group to try to advance our our, our, our collective interests. So that was kind of the pathway as to why I, I got involved. I did not anticipate being in this role at any point in time, but I did so during my playing career because of the responsibility that I thought I had. Well, but you're also one of one. There's been a lot of fine leaders in your seat. 
but none of them ever put on a major league uniform. That's a different responsibility, is it not? It, it, it is. Uh, it is. And, and, and I have, uh, I won't say necessarily a different perspective, but my experiences are different than, than my predecessors. The goals are the same, but my experiences are different. And, and that requires me uh, to be, you know, surrounded by, by uh, uh, those that um, uh, uh, provide uh, the expertise and experience and support that I don't have. While at the same time, um, because I, I had my dream job already, it affords me an opportunity to really just focus uh, and commit to the same thing that I did as an active player, protecting and advancing the rights of, of, of the players and ensuring the well-being of the game moving forward. The game means everything to me. The game has provided for my family. Uh, the fraternity that I'm grateful to be a part of has been supportive throughout. Uh, but in, in in being drafted at, at 17 and and um, uh, you know being uh, uh, 50, 50 or so uh, uh, now, um, uh, I've been in the game for a long time, uh, and so uh, there's nothing I won't do for it. Uh, there's nothing uh, I wouldn't do to protect it, and, and there's nothing that I wouldn't do to provide support to the guys who who have played it, are playing it, and those that are coming next. I do quickly while we're here. Let's hit on a couple of of these topics uh within the last week you guys joined forces with the afl cio in washington dc uh there are a couple other sports leagues that did the same men's and women's soccer i saw that nfl um explain to fans why this is important and what it does it mean anything as fans are watching the game moving forward um, I don't know that it means anything for the game necessarily but what it does mean is there's a more formal connection uh, among the unions that are involved in sport and those uh, uh, that are in, in oftentimes involved in, in our industry behind the scenes. In other words, uh, we've all had our, our challenges uh, over the course of the last couple of years. Um, we all had our challenges in general, but definitely uh, over the last couple of years with, with COVID and 2020 and the like. And, and I learned a lot Um Meaning when when our industry finds itself in some difficult places that there are a lot of people that are affected um, and a lot of our, our union brothers and sisters that are affected. And so over the course of, of that period of time, um, engaged uh, a lot of those unions, provided support back and forth and open lines of communication that didn't necessarily uh, exist uh, as much as they could have or perhaps should have. Um, and so fast forward, you re realize that you are a, a part of um, a, a movement um, uh, whereby people are coming together uh, and, and lending strength and, and power to their collective voice. We've done that since 1966. And over the course of our, our 56 year history, um, we have demonstrated that level of, 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 of strength and, and unity and solidarity. Each time we sat down at the bargaining table, you know, our, our, our history and challenges are well documented, but, but each time we sat down, um, uh, appreciated the value of the aggregate, appreciated the value of the collective voice and the strength that comes from collective bargaining and having a formal voice at the table. Well, there are other industries and other unions that have the same thing and being able to provide support to one another in whatever fashion that we can, seeing it manifest itself during a difficult 2020, seeing it manifest itself during an, an almost 100-day strike, um, encouraged us, encouraged our players to be a, a more formal part of the conversation, unlike any any time that we had been previously. I have a feeling you kind of prepared these guys, though, this time around. I mean, I had heard it that several years ago, like, be prepared. We're going to probably have a work stoppage. How important was it for you to educate this group of major league baseball players maybe even more so than ever before well i think education is crucial one of the things i offered the other day in in in, in a, a few public comments was was really the the foundational pieces that marvin miller our first executive director laid for us uh going back to to again 66 um for him uh it was about educated players making educated decisions about their careers and the well-being uh, of the Players Association. It was also about um, player unity and the understand, understanding and appreciating and respecting the sacrifices from those that that came before you. And it was also about a player obligation. I, I mentioned earlier about leaving the game better. 
understanding those three things um, was, was again, very foundational for Marvin at that time and something that we continue to, to rely on. And so when you talk about preparations for bargaining, the, the conversation wasn't expect a work stoppage. It, it, the conversation was each of the things that we want to address has caused work stoppages in the past. So guys, let's have our have our eyes wide open here and understand that as, as you look to make progress in any one of these particular areas, um, that is a possibility and we need to prepare accordingly. But understand what it is that you're fighting for and why it is that you're fighting for it, both for the betterment of the player group, but as, as, as well the game uh, on the field. Uh, and so that was what they heard from us over the course of, of a few years. And Seeing a number of things happen firsthand in 2020, I think, was an eye opener um, and, and watching things manifest themselves leading up to bargaining uh, and then through bargaining continued to hammer home really without us saying much of anything about what the guys should be prepared for. And unfortunately, uh, it lent itself to a, a lockout. And um, at the point in time that the league was interested in sitting down and negotiating a new agreement, we got to it. Um, could it have happened before the lockout? Yeah, it could have happened before the lockout. But uh, the decision that they made, they the league made, was to lock us out uh, at midnight on December 2nd. And, and we worked through it as best we could to get the guys back on a field with a fair and equitable deal uh, uh, there in March. You're a human being. At the end of the day, you don't want to be – you want to do what's best for your people, and I get that. Hmm. At the end of the day, you don't want to be the guy who has the first work stoppage in almost 30 years on your watch. How much did it hurt you personally that there was a work stoppage? Well, that work stoppage and the decision to to implement it was the league's decision. It wasn't yeah. our decision, you know, our decision. So uh, I know that we did everything we could to negotiate a deal prior to expiration uh, along the lines of, of the things that we were interested in while trying to address some of the, the concerns and interests that they had. And so it, it takes two to tango uh, in that world. And so it, it wasn't a matter of sleeping fine or not sleeping fine. There aren't enough hours in the day at this point in time to navigate the, the chaos in general. But it was about making sure, going back to your point a second ago, that the guys understood what it was that we were looking to accomplish and why it was we were looking to accomplish it. And against that backdrop, at the point in time, the other side is interested in sitting down and, and looking to, to, to find ways to, to do so then that's when we'll do so. Prior to that, we're negotiating with ourselves. And so we didn't implement the lockout. That was something that they did. We were available uh, to discuss and negotiate uh, throughout. I will admit that it was a little different negotiation when you, you, you're, you're negotiating over Zoom uh, rather than, than in person. That was a different dynamic. Um, but the one thing that was truly, I think, beneficial in that regard was that we had players at every meeting. Uh, oftentimes we have players at certain meetings when everybody's in person, but in this instance, we had players from all 30 teams in every bargaining session that we had. So players heard firsthand what the other side was saying. Uh, players knew going in and coming out what the proposals were and what they looked like. And so when we talk about educated players making educated decisions, our players were educated, our players were engaged, uh, and the decisions we made were against that backdrop in a way that did allow me to sleep the few hours that we did during the course of that time because we knew the players understood uh, how the moving pieces were fitting or not fitting at that particular time. On the shows that I do, we, we have brought up the point that Rob Manfred, yes, he is the commissioner of baseball, but essentially mm -hmm. he works for 30 people. If you really boil it down to that, do you think that a commissioner of a sport can have the best interest of the sport while still working for 30 owners? I can't speak to, to how the commissioner navigates his day or the types of conversations he has um, with his individual owners or, or the collective. Um, but I will say this, uh, I do think and have thought for some time as our players do as well, there's an opportunity here and has been for a while to move the game forward. And just because you, you disagree, perhaps, as to how to do that doesn't mean that that opportunity still doesn't exist. And so despite the fact that uh, I think what you've highlighted is, is more accurate than not, that, that 
the commissioner has has his bosses and his, the 30 interests among those bosses. Um, I love our game too much to not believe that despite what we've seen uh, over the course of the last seven years or so and the changes that we've seen in our game, that there still isn't an opportunity to move the game forward, particularly when uh, our players are as, as, as athletically gifted and talented as they are from top to bottom. Um, it, it's unfortunate, I think, uh, in a lot of ways that, that uh, there are far less baseball people making baseball decisions. And I think that has adversely affected our game. Uh, I would like to see more baseball people in, in positions of, of authority making uh, the decisions uh, uh, that I think truly protect, uh, let alone advance uh, the interests in our game. Uh, but for the time being, uh, we're, we're navigating the chaos as best we can. And, and again, there's an opportunity, even with our differences, to try to do so. Well, what specifically are you talking about in terms of you'd like to see more baseball people help out with decisions and maybe shaping the game? Are you talking about on field like today? We're supposed to find out that MLB is going to improve bigger bases pitch clock, stepping off the rubber only a couple of times per at-bat, eliminating the shift, that sort of stuff. That Yeah, the, the game itself. So I, I often say, so people say that, you know, is the game of baseball broken? Baseball is not broken, but what people are doing to it, it sure as hell is trying to break it. Um, and and I, I say that um, because there, there's been a fundamental shift. When I say baseball people, there are, are, are people that understand the game. They understand the nuances associated with the game. They understand and appreciate the challenges of playing 162 games uh, along with the, the six-plus week spring training. Um, there are things that don't manifest themselves on a piece of paper and don't show up in a stat sheet. And look, analytics has been here forever. I'm not an anti-analytics guy. I truly am not. Analytics has been here forever. What has always been the case has been that the data and information that is being created and generated is then provided to the baseball people who can take that information and then have it manifest itself in a way that uh, uh, is beneficial so as not to adversely affect the game or overwhelm the players with too much information. What has happened is the inverse. The decisions that are being made seem to be largely made by that data and those that are providing it. I've heard far too many stories about how how hitters meetings function now and how pitchers meetings function now and how games are, are being navigated now to believe that, that the balance that I think should be there uh, isn't quite there right now. Um, I do think that there's an opportunity to balance the equation. Again, I'm not looking to get rid of analytics. Um, uh, I think they are beneficial to understanding and appreciating um, how some of the moving pieces do fit. But there's a balance um, and anything in, in moderation and anything with a balance uh, uh, can benefit our game. But but you, you've heard it, I'm sure, Chris, three true outcomes, all of these things manifesting themselves in the fashion that they are, uh, I truly believe isn't giving and providing an opportunity for our players to demonstrate just how talented they are. Um, again, we don't need to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I I'm encouraged with some of the things that I'm seeing, meaning that perhaps that pendulum is swinging back to a balance point that, that may be beneficial. But uh, any of the uh, I should say any number of rules that you're talking about um, uh, the league implementing uh, here um, is truly against the backdrop of of not necessarily addressing the reason why suddenly they need to be a part of the equation. Um, there's a reason why they need to be a part of the equation. So anyway, I I'll stop there. But uh, I am encouraged with some of the things that I'm seeing, and I'm hopeful that 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 balance point does happen sooner rather than later. I don't know that uh, the new rules are going to help get us there. I can tell you that our players, um, as a part of this committee, um, have been remarkably well involved, not just the ones that are on the committee, but the the, the other uh, uh, 26 or so teams um, that are uh, also have a voice uh, beyond the committee. The guys have been invested, have offered thoughts and commentary about each of these rules um, and things that they think uh, could help make them better, help respect the actual nuances and challenges that exist on a day-to-day -day basis uh, on the field. And we'll have to see whether or not they're incorporated uh, into what the, the final decision is. If they are, great. 
that gives us an opportunity to move move forward together in a way that we think is beneficial. If they aren't, um, well, then that says something too. Um, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm all for trying stuff because I think that I I've never seen a group of baseball players in the 45 years I've been watching the game that's better athletically. I just want to see it on the field. You know, I I can't tell how great an outfielder is athletically when the ball keeps flying over his head or it never makes it past home plate. (laughs) So I just want to see that as a fan. That's all. And I'm willing to try stuff. I don't know if it's going to work. You know, I don't know if banning the shift is going to work. But you know what? When my 16-year-old who's a baseball player sees a seed hit right up the middle, and the shortstop doesn't have to move, and the ball hits him right in the chest, he's like, Dad, that's why I'm going to go play video games. I can't watch a guy do what he's supposed to do at home plate and then not be rewarded for it. I said, okay, makes sense. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. Understandable. want to get back to your playing career. Um, If, as a player, you could only pick one all-star game to participate in over the last 40 years, let's say, there are two that come to mind. 99 at Fenway, when everybody surrounded Ted Williams. 2001 up in Seattle when we bid adieu to Cal Ripken Jr. and Tony Gwynn. You were fortunate enough to appear in the latter. What is your lasting image from that? What was your best experience from Seattle that year? You know what's interesting? I was a kid in a candy store um, at that time, being surrounded by some of the superheroes uh, in our game, um, many of which I had grown up watching. Uh, growing up in San Diego, Tony Gwynn, uh, it's, uh, you know, his jersey is over my shoulder. Um, he was and meant the world to me. Um, and so being there um, uh, was, uh, wow, facial hair was was a, a little darker then. <laughs> Look oh, at and, you. And, hair on, and hair on top. Oh, I, um, man. Yeah, I was... Uh, I was grateful. I was humbled. Um, but there is, there's really one thing that jumped out to me. Um, and that was Clemens started that game for us on the, on the American league side. And when he came out, uh, into the dugout as, as we were done warming up, uh, and we were all about to go out, his comment was, all right, boys, let's go get this done. And it was, it was one of those, yeah, we're at an all-star game, uh, and yeah, we're 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 going to put on a show, but we're going to win this game because that's what we do. And it it was it was a reminder for me that amid all the the chaos and the fluff and the 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 fireworks and 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 all the festivities, that we were being recognized as the best players in the game at that time. Um, and we believed in the American League; we were better than the National League. So, despite all the storylines. Let's go win a ball game. That that resonated for me. Bill, it was pretty damn cool. You were at Cal and Tony Gwynn's last <laughs> all-star game. I'm sorry. Let's go yeah. win the game. I got you, Rocket. Let's go. I'm with you. But, man, that's pretty awesome for a kid that, you know, got to yeah. live out a dream. It, it was. And, and and again, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That resonated for me at the during the game, during that time. Afterward, and having a chance to reflect. Of course, while I was playing, I didn't do it near as much. But when you're, you, you, you take the uniform off for the last time and you kind of sit down and think about the things that you were fortunate enough to experience, that was undoubtedly one of them, having an opportunity to be there uh, as a part of uh, uh, of that celebration was was a thing. Was there a welcome to the show moment for you? Was there a, I can't believe I'm on the same field as this guy earlier in your career? Was there a moment where you're like, this is unreal? Yeah, uh, there was, and it was game two for me. Um, so, so game one, when I got called up, I ended up pitch hitting that, that night. Um, and, uh, uh, the next day though, I, I started, um, we were playing the Indians. Um, and my, my first at bat, I, I struck out second at bat. I struck out third at bat. I hit a ground ball to second and I, I quietly fist pumped that I, you know, at least put the stinking ball in play. Um, and then my, my fourth at bat, um, uh, I got, got a hit and I got down to first. And when I got down there, Eddie Murray was the first baseman and I didn't know what to say. So I, I said, Mr. Murray is a pleasure. And he looked at me <clears throat> and, and it seemed like a long time, but I know it wasn't a long time. He said, Mr. Clark, welcome to the big leagues. And ever since then, 
literally right now, if if I run into to to Eddie, it's Mr. Murray, Mr. Clark, and that was a, a tilt. It was it was just a a a welcome kit, you know, to to the big leagues that Eddie Murray switcher, obviously that that I had a, a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation for. Um, that that was our first interaction and in, in my first start in in the big leagues and. Uh, it just so happened that that Dave Winfield was on that team as well. He was somebody else that I idolized uh, growing up in in San Diego, um, and so I had an opportunity to to run into him 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 as well. But that was that was one of those moments that that I'll I'll never forget. Absolutely, Are you kidding me? A few years later, you end up in New York, <laughs> playing with uh, Jeter. You're playing with A Rod in his first year up there, and in fact, you know that part of your story made it in Jeter's documentary, right? Yeah, I've only, I haven't seen the the first. Uh, I haven't seen the last few episodes, but I, yeah. I did see the the first few. But I, yeah, I, I heard that there was there was an at bat in there at the very least that uh, uh, I think I, uh, shockingly had me strike out. Um, no, 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 no. Here, here we go. We've got a little Uh-oh. taste of of. What oh, was. here we go. Let's give a listen. Clark hits it into the right field. Oh. That ground rule double was spooky. I mean, only in Fenway Park. I mean, it hit the ledge of the low wall. Our runner was basically rounding third, and he had to go all the way back. And we go, oh, my God. Mm. How often do you replay that in your mind? You know what? I try not to, um, but it is what, what's I. <laughs> no, it's okay. What's ironic is is that even to this day, and obviously uh, it making uh, that particular episode, I still hear about it. Um, from Boston fans and from Yankee fans, um, that uh, in a lot of ways that may have been the shifting point um, uh, of that because, uh, yes, uh, Ruben scores pretty easily if that ball stays in. Um, and and that may have been the extra run that we needed um, to, to close that thing out. Uh, and so when I do think back on it, you, you realize that uh, yeah, you only have so many opportunities to to make it to the World Series, and and obviously only have so many opportunities once you get there uh, to walk away and and be the last team standing. And that was uh, as close as I had ever uh, as I ended up getting. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I, I try not to think about what would have happened if it. Heck, it could have just went out, and we all would have been would have would have been uh, much much better for it. At least the, uh, us as Yankees uh, would have been much better for it. Um, but yeah, it it hopping out uh, and not staying in or, or rolling around in that circle. Um, uh, I truly believe is one of the reasons why I don't have a ring sitting on my desk right now. Was it crazy playing? You only were up there for one year, right? <laughs> how different was it? it? It was really night and day. Um, I, that was year 10 for me. Um, so I'd been in the league for a while and, and had seen a few things and, and had played on a, a few teams at that point. Um, but uh, uh, being a Yankee was a different dynamic um, and and one where the expectations were tangible, which I greatly appreciated. Uh, quick story, very quick story. Spring training that year, get in early, working out prior to officially opening. Um, and Derek was in and, and, and was working out. And, and we had one day before camp officially opened up uh, and we get done, done taking some ground balls. And, and Derek says, so what do you what do you got going on tomorrow? And I said, I'll probably get in early. I'll get a lift in and get some swings in and see if I can find somebody to fungal, fungal me a few balls. Um, uh, but it'll be a little bit shorter. And he said, yeah, you need to take the day off. And I said, well, why would I take the day off now? He said, because that's the last off day you will have that you can control uh, before the, the end of October. And it was one of those comments where, yeah, a lot of teams, you know, hope to be the last team standing. But there was an expectation that you were going to be the last team standing. And so take your off day because it's going to be the last one you get. And you're going to be playing a whole lot of extra baseball more so than a lot of other teams are, are going to that stuck out to me. And something that I hadn't really heard despite the other teams that I had been on. That's Jeter in a nutshell. Mm. He wasn't planning any vacations for October 16th. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. That. A couple more with you. And I really appreciate your time today. This has been a blast. Um, do you remember your last major league home run, number 251? Uh, I believe it was uh, a changeup off of Jared Weaver, maybe. Um, yes. no, yeah, dude, you in, smoked uh, it. It wasn't one of those wall scrapers. 
Yeah. Fastball, fastball. Um, I, I, it went a pretty good distance. The, the, the irony there is that I was, I wasn't really healthy. Um, uh, and that bat I was swinging was a 35, 36. Um, so I was trying to, trying to take a lot of the body movement out. Yeah, I'm not even running, running very well at that point. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I remember that as the last one. And I remember my last at bat as well. Well, d- when that ball leaves the yard, you probably know at that point, well, there might not be too many more. Did you, while circling the bases, did you maybe take a moment and say, that's it. That was pretty good. No. Um, and, and obviously looking back, realizing it was the last one, I wish, I wish I had enjoyed it a little more. I wish there were a lot of things about my career that while I was playing, I enjoyed a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the bat that sticks out to me, um, was my last at bat, uh, off of Josh Johnson, who was blowing 97, oh. 98. Um, uh, and I had worked ahead in the count, uh, and ended up swinging at a three, two, uh, running fastball at, at 97, give or take, um, and striking out. And so striking out my last at bat in a, as a pinch hit at bat, that's the one that resonates with me more than the other. And I, I wish it didn't, obviously I wish I'd gotten a knock or at least worked a walk. Um, but uh, I guess you could say I, I went out the same way I came in, uh, striking out and dragging my bat back to the dugout. Don't feel bad. Josh Johnson got a lot of people when he was at the apex of his career. Yeah, I hear you. He was a handful. I agree. And don't feel don't feel bad thinking that Weber threw you a changeup because his fastball did look like a changeup to some people. Oh uh, well, I mean, people probably forget he was a, a low to mid nineties guy uh, at was. one point. Um, oh yeah, and uh, I relied a lot more on on his pitching acumen and movement uh, there as he he wound down a few years later. But uh, but no, having played uh, uh, with his brother and then that at bat against it uh, against him was it's kind of neat 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 uh, neat talking point too. Weaver family, interesting mm-hmm. people. They're fun. They'll, Indeed, they'll keep you on your toes. I'm going to spin the wheel of moderately interesting things before I let you get out of here. Good deal. Don't don't be alarmed. The questions are not very difficult. I'm not very smart. (laughs) Crushing it. Oh, this could be cute. Who was your first celebrity childhood crush? (laughs) My first celebrity childhood crush was Lisa Lisa from Colt Jam. No way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one, man. Well, I, I'm guessing too that ended up probably being about two feet taller than she she was, <laughs> but 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 uh, uh, or is I should say, but yeah, Lisa Lisa and Cold Jam. That's good. I always share this whenever I land on it. For me, it was Cheryl Ladd from back in oh, the wow. uh, Charlie's Angels days. Okay, not mad at you. No, because then um, when I was hosting Best Damn, she actually came on the show as a guest one day. Wow. And I ran home and I told my wife, I was like, you won't believe who was on. (laughs) Cheryl Ladd. She's laughing. She's laughing. She's like, she wouldn't even look at you. Not for a second. I was like, yeah, I know. Yeah, reality reality kicks in a little bit. But, But for that time being, for that time, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I understand. I understand. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Tony, this was a blast, man. I I really appreciate it. I know that your time is precious these days. You are are busy, busy. I am curious real quick about the minor league vote, which Mm -hmm. just went out less than two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once again, if an agreement does come in place, if they end up getting unionized and there's an agreement, it's very different than the one that the major league players will have. But what is the crux of the issue that, that fans are going to be curious about? Because we know so little about whether it's living conditions or how right. guys get to games or nutrition or things like like What is the major issue with facing minor leaguers? Well, I think there are, are a number of them. Um, you know, I, uh, good, bad, and different. I, I remember my, my days in the minor leagues. Um, and unfortunately, not much has changed in the last uh, 30 years in that regard. So regard. So much of the issues are the same, but there are, are others that are different. And, and some of them uh, are, are different according to organization. And some of them are, are different according to, to, to development level. 
Um, and so when, when, when thinking about the, the moving pieces here of interest that the guys want to talk about, there are a number of them. We've heard from a lot of the guys on a number of them. We will follow their lead in regard to the things that they want to address, assuming we get this across the finish line at the bargaining table. But a lot of them are, are fundamental uh, and similar to those uh, of, of any union that's looking to organize at, at, and even, even our, 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 our major league guys and the concerns that they have. And those are you know, fair pay. Those are uh, benefits and improved benefits. Those are um, a standard of working condition. Uh, again, indifferent to what level that you play or, or what team that you are on. Um, and then you get beyond that. And there are some things that are, are particular to uh, the minor leagues. And, and some of those have to do with the number of, of teams that are, are there and the number of jobs that are otherwise available. And again, you start getting into rules and other things that are, are, are often a part of the equation on the minor league side that may not manifest themselves on the major league side. All those are part of, of the conversation uh, in a way that I'm guessing should, again, we get this across the finish line that the minor league guys will want to have some, some dialogue on and a formal voice in moving forward. And just real quickly with where that stands, you guys have presented this to Major League Baseball, so it's in their court as of right now. Is that where it is? Right. So, Chris, what you what happens is once you have the 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 requisite number of authorization cards, a a a a, a percentage of the players in this instance that uh, would like to be unionized, um, you have two pathways. One is voluntary recognition by the employer in this instance, Major League Baseball. Um, the second is to petition the NLRB, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and attempt to be recognized that way, should there not be a voluntary, uh, voluntary recognition by the employer. That process, the voluntary recognition piece, is what you're, you're referring to that is happening right now. We'll see what happens. We are encouraged by the, the early dialogue. Um, so if there, there is voluntary recognition, that means one thing. If there isn't, then there's another pathway by which the players can, can still find their formal seat at the table. I appreciate the clarity on that. Uh, like I said, this was fun. I, I know we get to see each other every few years at a ballpark or something <laughs> like that. I right. hope it's uh, it's more frequent than that now that we're, we seem to be a little more progressing past the COVID situation. So that's good. Oh, no, I, uh, I hope so. Once too. again, I appreciate the time. Let's let's uh, let's do this again some point down the road. Okay, Chris, I look forward to that. I appreciate it. Special shout out to our producer extraordinaire, the one and only mustached man, Robbie Chiracco, for Tony Clark. I am Chris Rose. We'll see you next time on the Chris Rose Rotation, a production of John Boy Media.